Coming up on this week's show, the Nintendo 64 gets reimagined. Hogs of War is back. And we chat to the man behind the legendary scum engine, Eric Wilmunder. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every week with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, have you seen their brand new book, Perfect for October? From Ants to Zombies, six decades of video game horror. Delving in to the remarkable history of games that terrify and delight in equal measure, launching on Halloween. So you can check that out and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 400. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And I think we need a bit more excitement. Episode 400, boys. <laughs> I, knew, I knew the sound effects would come out. <laughs> Have some champagne, Joe. <laughs> Set the fireworks off on the lawn at the front as well. 400 episodes of this little podcast that we started. We're trying to work it out, weren't we? It was uh, January 2016 when we launched this podcast. Thinking, uh, I remember Ravi and I saying, we'll do maybe two or three episodes, see how it goes. And here we are almost eight years later and 400 episodes of this show out there in cyberspace, <laughs> covering the news every single week. And of course, the guests that we've had on as well. I mean, we're not going to get too self-indulgent this week, hopefully. But I think, you know, it is nice to have a little celebration when we do reach a benchmark like 400. Yeah, it's absolutely mental. I, I remember when we were walking and uh, Dan turned around to me and he was just like, should we do a podcast? I was like, oh, isn't podcasting dying a bit? You know, uh, yeah, they don't seem to be like that big anymore. And yeah, let, let's just go for it. We both like radio. And um, Joe joined us. And yeah, 400 episodes later, many years as well. It's uh, it's pretty crazy. And, uh, you know, I, I can't believe some of the guests we've had on as well. You know, uh, some of these people giving us their time and uh, yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. And uh, also, you know, trusting us to be able to come on and, and tell their story and and not kind of, you know, go for the drama and the hype and just uh, tell the kind of story from their perspective, which uh, I, re- I really enjoy. Yeah, I think, you know, the fact that the, the incredible calibre of people that we've had on the show as well, you know, people that I never dreamed I get to speak to when I was a kid, you know, sitting there in my bedroom playing video games by some people who not only we've had on the podcast, but actually regard as friends now as well. You know, it's just been an incredible journey um, through the last 400 episodes. And of course, we want to say a big thank you to you as well for tuning in every single week. There'd be no point in doing this without our incredible audience. You know, big thanks to our incredible sponsors as well who make it all possible. And uh, don't know about you guys, here's to 400 more. Yeah, yeah absolutely. How many uh, grey hairs will we have by then? <laughs> Oh, I've got well, a few now. But yeah, it's, and it's just incredible hanging out with you guys every week as well. And the events we get to go to, you know, all around the world as well, made possible thanks to this uh, this little podcast that we do every single week. So it's just been amazing. Now, you might remember over the last couple of weeks, we kind of opened the doors, didn't we? And said, um, if you want to come on the show and maybe leave us a little message, I actually set up a voicemail line. 
Now, we have been uh, <laughs> quite overwhelmed, I think is probably the word. We've had loads of these. So, uh, honestly, a massive thank you. I had no idea that we'd get this many, if I'm honest. Um, and I could play them all back to back now, but I think that will probably take up around eight minutes of the podcast. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of break them up, play a few at the start, a few just ones I've randomly selected. We'll do a few in about half an hour, and then I'll play the rest of them out at the end of the podcast as well. So, uh, you guys want to hear a few voicemails now? Yeah, man. Let's do it. Go for it. Hello, Retro Hour. My name is Stephen Goodwin, author of Grumpy Manager, Die Hard Vendetta, and more recently, the book 20 Go to 10. Congratulations to me, Dan Wood, me, Ravi Abbott, and me, Joe Fox, for making it to 400 episodes. I personally didn't think they'd get past 329, but that's because I was on episode 329. (laughs) Thanks again for having me on the show, and I look forward to 2043, when my recent games will be old enough to be considered retro, and hopefully I'll be allowed back on the show. Bye for now. Guys, I've been listening to this podcast since episode one. It's absolutely brilliant. You know, I mean, some of my favorite episodes have been the ones where you've um, interviewed the 8-bit musicians, you know, the ones that, that dealt with the uh, the old school sound chips. Um, you know, I'd love it if you could get Yuzo Koshiro on there, but you've had you've had the classics from the C64 era and the, and the Spectrum era and that. And, you know, I mean, keep doing it. Keep going for it. I fucking love it. I don't know if I can swear, but I just did. Anyway, you go for it, guys. I'm Jason Manchester, by the way. Take it easy. Congratulations, Retro Hour Podcast. Oh, my goodness. God bless you, gentlemen. And you too, Dan. Thanks so much for being the best podcast of all time. You guys are the ones that started me listening to podcasts. It was the very first episode of the Retro Hour podcast. That was the first podcast I ever listened to. And you are still my absolute favorite of all time. I listen to every single episode. God bless you guys for your longevity and your tenacity. I am so happy to be celebrating your 400th episode with you. Congratulations on reaching such an amazing milestone. It's so inspirational how you guys find the time and enthusiasm to create such a consistently great podcast. Fantastic job. Then about you guys, but I'm grinning like a Cheshire cat. Yeah. Already. That, you know what? It kind of, it, it made me go, I don't know, you know, when you feel a bit, not embarrassed, but like I proper looked down smiling, like kind of like yeah. chuckling to myself. They were, they were really, really lovely. They were. And you got a bit shy, Jeff. Yeah, a bit shy. Really put it into a perspective for me, really. No, it was amazing. No, but yeah, thank you so much. More of those on the way in just a bit. So if you have left us one, now you'll hear it very soon. Now, uh, we had to think of obviously an incredible guest to join us for our 400th episode as well. And uh, you all know that you know, I'm a massive point-and-click adventure game fan, you know, grew up playing those. We've done several episodes with, you know, legends from Sierra, LucasArts, Lucasfilm. And uh, today, um, I think this one is probably the most in-depth interview we've ever done. Very fitting for what is going to be not only our 400th episode, but actually we're going to continue this next week as well, because it's a massive, epic two-hour interview this week, isn't it, Ravi? Yeah, I, I don't think we could have fit like the history of this into uh, <laughs> uh, one episode, so we had to go for two, and my God, this is uh, just such a good interview, because, um, you know, we've talked about the Scum Engine, and we've talked about the games in the Scum Engine on this podcast quite a lot, and, uh, you know, We've got the co-creator here, um, Eric Wilmunder, the uh, scum lord, as he's actually known. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> man, he he basically worked with Ron Gilbert, and, you know, they created the Scum Engine, which has been a huge part of the development of uh, point-and-click adventures, also adventure titles. And this is, 
you know, from Zach McCracken and the uh, Alien Mindbenders in 1988, going all the way to um, 1997, which is uh, pretty amazing to have an engine that's developed that long um, to the final game, which was The Curse of Monkey Islands. And uh, there's titles like Loom in there, The Dig, uh, Full Throttle, which is one of my favourites as well, uh, Maniac Mansion, uh, just so many. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's mind-bending to kind of go on this uh, on this interview and uh, talk to Eric, like some of the people that he's worked with as well, you know, Spielberg mm. and... Uh, just uh, hearing the history of it and also his opinions on Sierra and stuff. Um, a, a really, really interesting interview. Yeah, and it made all those games you mentioned there possible. I mean, uh, obviously, it stands for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion. Um, you know, it said started in 1987 and was used for, you know, over a decade. And then the fact that the Scum Engine made all of those incredible point-and-click adventure games possible and was ported to so many different platforms as well. I mean, I've been looking at the list of platforms at the Scum engine ran software on it was you know 3do amiga apple II, atari st commodore 64 even the mac the nes dos mega cd TurboGrafx 16 and even today i mean we've got stuff like you know scum vm that lets you play all these classic games on so many different platforms obviously we kind of get into that with him as well so the first half is going to be kind of you know the history kind of setting up of the creation of the scum engine and then the second half will go really into the game so an incredible guest to celebrate our 400th episode probably our most in-depth interview we've ever done with eric wilmunder he's coming up on the show in around half an hour from now but otherwise it is business as usual and you know the way that this podcast works first half of it we like to bring you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology from over the last seven days and uh oh my word this has been absolutely everywhere on my timeline. Every time I open Facebook, I'm seeing this everywhere over the last couple of days. People have been sharing it with us on Discord. I've seen it on Reddit as well. And it's finally, it looks like we're getting a new version of the Nintendo 64 because uh, Nintendo weren't going to give it to us. So uh, leave it to Analog to do it instead. Yeah, this uh, looks really interesting. So uh, Analog's next project, which is going to be due in uh, early 2024, is going to be a hardware-accurate-emulated Nintendo 64 replica is the headline. <laughs> I keep seeing now, everywhere. I'm, I'm waiting because this is FPGA based and you're going to get people going, well, it's not emulation. You always get that argument. Well, the, yeah, comments, yeah, this is the thing. So I, uh, you know, my understanding of, of the analog consoles is, you know, they are, I was going to say original hardware. They're not original hardware. As you said, they're FPGA. So it's not emulation. You use original cartridges in there and you know yeah. it's all 4k and hdmi and all that kind of stuff and you know there's no rom files involved i guess there is if you use a, an everdrive and stuff like that yeah um and you know they're region free and they've already said this is going to be region free so it will use you know it'll play you know all types of n64 uh cartridges which is really cool um they haven't revealed the look of it or the controller no. yet they've done like a little like kind of like shadowed out snippet yeah of it's very teasery isn't it yeah uh, i've got a feeling they're not gonna do you know the old kind of like trident free prong n64 controller i think they're gonna do a more you know a modern kind of style controller i know you can in in the picture they have revealed the tease as you say ravi is literally like the top right of the yeah, so <laughs> you, controller you, so you can't actually see if there's a middle prong in there can you it's no, just kind of it could Shut be hidden in the out, dark, I yeah. guess. <laughs> yeah, but, well, I mean, this system, it is, it's a console. It's going to be called the Analog 3D. And uh, the tagline is, the future is here, 64 bits of pleasure. 
And like you said then, Joe, it's um, they've revealed some of the specs already, you know, wireless Bluetooth and a 2.4G, four original-style controller ports on it as well. That's good. So it will work with the original controllers by the sound okay, of it. Wicked. Completely re-engineered in FPGA, um, uses the analog OS, no emulation in there as well, but what I really like about this is it's not so much, a, you know, like a straight copy of the N64. They've also enhanced it too, so it is, you know, a reimagining of the system, including some new display modes as well, including 4K rev- resolution. So basically play your N64 games upscale to 4K on your modern TV. But it's also got original display modes as well. So w- yeah. w- what you can do is, like, select the display mode, and I think... You know, they've definitely beat Nintendo to this one. And uh, it's always been hard to emulate the N64. I remember it took ages for the emulators to kind of get it going. Like Mario 64 seemed to be one of those titles that, um, you know, everybody could do. But the compatibility on other stuff, some of the rare titles, it it was really tough. And from what I hear, like, you know, with the analog pocket and the Super NT, analog are just really good at this they they know what they're doing and you know they say 100% compatibility and that will happen you know it's not uh one of these kind of hype things this company has such a good reputation of of creating these devices and they often look really beautiful as well the analog pocket from from what i saw it, it looks absolutely amazing i've never actually uh used any analog products myself have you guys uh mm. ever had one in your hands no, I, I've I've not used any of them. Uh, you know, you guys know me. I'm very old school. You know, <laughs> you don't, original hardware. Original RF, hardware. Mate. You don't need, yeah, you don't need this got, HDMI. Yeah, RF on my uh, N64 at the moment. Uh, you're not even wrong there. Um, so I've not played. I've not played them, but I know. You know, they're highly regarded, especially the analog pocket. You know, whenever we're looking to do news and stuff like that, I always see pretty much every week something about the analog pocket being praised or something else has been ported to it that plays, you know, really, really well and stuff. So it is exciting to see, uh, you know, the Nintendo 64 being done. Um, it's interesting because, you know, obviously they're, they're saying, you know, without any of the performance problems or rendering inaccuracies of the N64. So it would be it would be interesting to see, you know, the if the draw distances have, you know, improved at all in any of the games like Body mm. Harvest or anything like that, or even, uh, you know, if they have a smear vision on there that you can turn yes. on. Yeah, on I think that will be the prob- probably the original mode. And then yeah. it'd be amazing to see, well, smear vision as you put it in, in 4K. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it looks like as well those original display modes. Um, they've actually they've used um, like classic PVMs CRT displays as a reference point. So basically, it's going to yeah emulate what it looked like on a on a PVM on a modern display. That's cool. Um, yeah, which I think is going to be quite interesting to see because that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, even when you play N sixty four games on the Switch, some of them have problems on there. Mm. You know, with Nintendo's own emulation. So the fact that this is like a proper FPGA reinterpretation of the N64 um, with, you know, what looks like a a modern style controller that works with modern displays as well. Um, Because, I mean, it does feel like whenever, you know, we talk about mini consoles, that seems to be the one thing everyone wants, isn't it? Like an N64 mini. That does kind of lead me to my next point, which is how much do you think this is going to cost? Because I've got a feeling it's probably going to be more than, you know, one of the mini consoles, for example. Yeah, I think... um aren't these usually like kind of like three, four hundred pounds? They're pretty expensive, yeah. aren't they, <laughs> when they come out? So I won't be yeah. surprised. Um, a lot of these kind of like, you know, even just the replica, con- replica consoles, which are in 4K, uh, tend to be on, on the on the new console kind of, 
price wise side of things they're, they're kind um, of the the high quality ones though aren't they though? yeah like, absolutely you know yeah. for, for, for that 100 percent accuracy and i can imagine even having your n64 all your original stuff and then the games would be expensive but also having you know adapters on the back and stuff i can imagine uh that that gets quite expensive but not near near that but you know uh it, it sounds good if it, if it's a good solution and um yeah i i, I think you might have add-ons in there you know people can uh just like virtually add like memory expansions and stuff it's going to be great to see what happens yeah absolutely i think just having a new n64 that's easy to hook up to a modern display looks good you know, which is like half the battle already won, I think. So uh, looks like there's not long to wait for that. So if you want to check out the little teaser so far, I will link that in our show notes as well. Now, something else from back in the day that is back for 2023, or uh, maybe 2024, actually. Uh, this is running as a Kickstarter at the moment, and uh, it's literally just started at the time of recording this. Um, I think we're about two days in, but already they've reached over £20,000 at the time of recording. And uh, rightly so as well, because this is an official remaster of Hogs of War. Yeah, man. Hogs of War, Lardcore. This is called. <laughs> nice. Uh, and it's been developed by uh, Urban Scran, uh, which will be really interesting. And uh, it, it's uh, what caught my attention about it immediately when I first clicked on this, because I saw this last night. Um, a friend of ours posted it, and I saw this, and they are using uh, Rick Mail, you know, his original dialogue and all the original soundtrack and stuff like that. So straight... It wouldn't be the game without him. Yeah, it wouldn't have been, exactly. So straight away, I was like, that's amazing, you know, kind of thing. Like, And at first, I wasn't sure if it was a sequel or if it was a remake reimagining, but it is more of a remake reimagining. But I'm all for, you know, a new Hogs of War. Like you say, it is on Kickstarter, uh, £20,000 so far of their £150,000 target, um, which will mean the game will come out on PS4 and PS5. Uh, stretch targets for like Xbox and PC and stuff like that. They've actually got uh, a lot of stretch targets up to all the way up to a million pounds, interestingly. Wow. But they only need 150,000, I say only 150,000 for it to happen, which, you know, fingers crossed it does happen because I was a big fan of Hogs of War growing up, but always found it really difficult. So it'd be nice to revisit it and see if I can do it as an adult. Because there was a PlayStation release and a PC release as well, wasn't there? Yeah. And and I found it was it was one of these games that got overshadowed by stuff like Worms 3D and stuff. And yeah. it got a real cult following because it was just really good fun. And, you know, the, the whole kind of history of Gremlin and stuff, it's uh, really nice to kind of see this title getting redone. And uh, I, did, I, I think it, it deserves this and uh, it deserves a bit more appreciation as well because, uh, yeah, it was massively underrated, but... Uh, Anybody who collected PS1 stuff, you'd turn around and go, oh, yeah, Hogs of War, that's great. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I think you've hit the nail on the head there. You know, a lot of my friends, you know, who are, you know, into games, necessarily retro games or just kind of had a PS1 back in the day and stuff like that, a lot of them will bring up Hogs of War. And it's it's interesting because of, it's not got any sequels, you know. The legacy is it was a it was a one-off game, you know, for PS1 and PC 25 years ago. But so many people talk about it, and it's just like, like you say, it, it seems to be like it doesn't get a lot of a love, and maybe it does, just doesn't get a lot of love outside of the UK. And um, it was a, it was a time where camera angles were also, you know, they could make or ruin a game, <laughs> and yeah. people were just kind of getting used to that. And uh, I think they cracked it with Hogs of War, you know. It's, yeah. It, 
I remember playing some of the older titles, like uh, yeah. Lemmings 3D and stuff, and it was just a, a nightmare for me. Yeah, yeah, I can. Um, some of the games, you know, didn't do too well. I mean, obviously, this was an original IP, luckily, so it wasn't, you know, wasn't something that was 2D, and then you know they transitioned to 3D. But I think they did pretty well with, you know, it's that kind of like when is it? What is it? 98, 97, Hogs of War. So they did pretty well with the 3D on it. Um, one thing I will say, um, I I don't know about you guys, but I really, really, really had to look through the uh, the Kickstarter to find out what console it was actually on. Yeah. Um, I found it in the FAQs. It's laid out really fancy, isn't it? But it's, yeah. uh, it's not the easiest to follow the Kickstarter. Yeah, so, ones. you know, by any chance, anybody who's involved in it is listening. That was, that was my biggest kind of like, I was like, what co- console is this actually for? Because this is really exciting. Um, mm. And then one of the comments was uh, pr- pretty much some of the comments in the comment section I was reading for earlier today were saying, you know, maybe try and it seems aimed towards the Hogs of War fans, which are out there, but try, mm. I don't know how they would do this, but if you can try and aim it to the, the wider, the wider audience, maybe it would do better, but I don't know how they would do that with such a kind of like, it is a bit of a cult game. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But um, yeah. looking at it as well, like it would, it was all about the gameplay. Like the original landscape was just completely bare, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, compared to what they've got now with like, you know, the shader graphics and uh, all the kind of more cartoony deliberate style that they're putting in there. It's uh, it's going to be quite a different game, I think. And uh, a new audience, you know, kids might pick this up and if they're really, have good fun with it, then uh, yeah, it might it might grow, and you might get another. I'm looking at the team behind it as well. Um, interestingly, there's you know quite a few of the former Gremlin team behind it, including uh, Ian Stewart, uh, the former CEO of Gremlin, actually runs this company by the sounds of it. Urban oh, cool. Scan, excellent, based in Sheffield as well. Um, so it's uh, yeah, I think you know, there's, I've got every faith that they're going to deliver a really good product. So uh, and the fact that it's you know already reached that amount of money in just like the first like 24 hours pretty much over 20 grand um i'm pretty confident it's going to make it so if you want to back that on kickstarter that is available now and i'll put that in this week's show notes now um i was nearly a bit late recording the podcast uh, this week i say you guys are like oh, we're ready i was actually in my other room um playing <laughs> this free frasier RPG. Now I'm talking about you know Frasier as in the TV series. I know it's actually back again, isn't it? I know you've oh, been man. Uh, like, checking out the new series. So I'm I'm a big Frasier fan to the point of when Frasier kind of died. I was still I was I was wearing a Frasier T-shirt going around. The people were loving it, and uh, yeah, I've I've seen the new series and I do recommend it. I think it's uh, very funny. Some of the critics haven't been the biggest fans, but uh, I I think it's a, it's a good return and it's got a good foundation. But this is based on the uh, the older Frasier series, isn't it? Not the yeah. not the new version. Well, this is an RPG game that you can play for free um, through your web browser, actually, called uh, Frasier Fantasy, and also it works on the uh, the Analog Pocket and the Game Boy Color as well. Have you played this, Joe? Uh, I haven't. Um, I did. I did always enjoy Frasier. Um, but what's quite un- interesting about this is the guy who, like, you know, kind of came up with the concept. He just like did a little Photoshop mock-up of the uh, the box artwork, and then mm. he did that like four years ago. And then he was him who's like, I found the tweet of where he's like, Oh my god, somebody actually made this into a game, <laughs> which is just like absolutely brilliant. And you know, I know Ravi, like, say you're. A really big Frasier fan, and I do remember when Frasier finished. I remember watching the final. Um, people used to like take the mic, they used to put like a PS1 
like Frasier covers and stuff and yeah. like fake all these kind of games coming. So it's it's good to see it coming out on the uh, Game Boy Color as well, which is a interesting uh, kind of format to choose it because they've the way that they've done it is it's it's a bit like a, a an RPG, but then they've also got these huge pictures. And I must say, like Frasier does look well creepy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Kind of start it like he's got a sinister look in his eyes. Um, but it is quite a good fun, you know. Um, it's it's in a Zelda kind of style Pokemon, you know. Uh, yeah, it's that kind of like Zelda Link's Awakening slash kind of Pokemon top down look, isn't it? Which which I, I do love the love. plot as well. Basically, Fraser's just trying to organise a, a house party, but he definitely then goes to bed. He has to try and get his dad out of the house and get the place ready. Then he realises he's got to do his radio show in the middle of it as well, um, and he's got great music. There we go. A Game Boy rendition of. The Fraser theme tune. Plus salad and scrambled eggs. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, it is incredible, and it's it's funny to think because I mean I was trying to think before there wasn't any Fraser games back in the day, was no, there? But no. it would have made like a really good point and click adventure game out. Well, of the Frasier. thing was incredible. like the whole Saturn stuff. People got obsessed with it. I remember people were mm. doing uh, you know recreations of the apartment. That was uh, one particular thing in it, and that's where you start obviously in the game straight away. And uh, you know people talk about set designs as well, and apparently that's one of the really amazing ones but it is just basically a Frasier game set in in his world and uh yeah. of course you know creating a, a disastrous dinner party is a pretty much a staple for Frasier he's probably done yeah. about like 200 dinner parties and ruined them you know yeah, so it looks really cool. And it is uh, available for free uh, to play on your original hardware, or there is a little uh, web player as well, so you can play it in your browser. So uh, definitely worth checking out. Now, uh, Joe will be very excited about this news. Um, obviously, we're talking about the new Mario movie when that landed uh, back in the summer. Was it this year or last year? Uh, but anyway, 30 years ago, as now, you were, uh, did you go and see the cinema, Joe, when you were little? Did you go and see the Super Mario Brothers 93 movie? I didn't. I saw, I can tell you exactly where. I was. I think it must have been Christmas. Ooh, I want to say ninety-five, and mm. I think it was it was definitely Christmas Eve, and it was the uh, you know the TV premiere of Super Mario Bros on TV, and right. I, I remember it. I remember <laughs> it so well. Me and my brother watching it, and like I say, we loved it. We had no problem with it whatsoever. I even remember Your favorite film ever. One of my favorite films ever, absolutely, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, I even remember we have, we have a tradition in my family growing up that you always got a present on Christmas Eve. I remember what present it was. It was a gargoyle toy from the from the TV show Gargoyles, uh, which has recently been re-released and everything as well. It's funny how these things come full circle after 30 years. But yeah, Super Mario Bros. 1993 live action film is getting a 4K anniversary release. And I know, Ravi, you said, you know, a lot of these films come out and stuff like that, but it was just funny because it's Super Mario Bros and it's such a a terrible movie, (laughs) you know? And it's funny because it's like, I was looking at it and the first film, this one, had a $40 million budget and it made $39 at the box office. Lost money. So it lost money, lost, you know, (laughs) $100,000. And uh, the new one has grossed $1.3 billion so far. Bit of a difference then. It's just insane. (laughs) But yeah, this is coming from uh, Umbrella Home Entertainment. um, And they're going to be releasing in January 2024, which is quite funny because it's the 30th anniversary for it and it's actually coming out next year. Um, But it's going to be a hell of a collection. So it's going to cost $100. And it comes in... It's going to come in a huge box, which obviously includes the 4K Ultra HD version of the movie, 
but there's going to be three discs. Uh, so you get two extra Blu-rays in there, which are going to have uh, behind the scenes, um, you know, kind of documentary on there, behind the scene book uh, included with film cells, posters, stickers, artwork cards. Um, there's all new recorded audio commentary for the film. And there's also going to be, um, they've restored all the deleted scenes in the trailers for the film as well. Yeah. So, oh, sorry. But, um, you know, when they do these as well, they don't, uh, a few of them are done as upscales. This isn't an upscale. So they've got the original 35 millimeter print. Yeah. And they've also rescanned it from that. So they've, you know, and that will have those deleted scenes in there as well. And they've also remixed it for um, 5.1 as well. Oh, nice. Uh, so, you know, this is like prime, prime uh, yeah. 4K Ultra HD release. And uh, yeah, yeah if, if you've got the equipment and if you've got a player, it's uh, absolutely amazing to see. But uh, I, I do think it is, is quite expensive. To be it honest. is expensive. Yeah, yeah it is, it's massively expensive. It is, it, it's just a fun novelty and people will probably, you know, the fans will buy it, the, the everyday man probably won't pick it up for that kind of money yeah. but the the old you know the fans of the uh the classic will no doubt pick it up and pre-order it and stuff like that and it's probably gonna you know i would imagine it's probably gonna see a relatively limited release and probably yeah well it's it's, stuff. it's got uh quite a few things that you you'd enjoy joe which is uh you know it's got a uh, trust the fungus big collector's pack which has a uh rigid outer slip case it has a scripts book as well oh, uh, nice. behind the scenes book Souvenir magazine, uh, reversible posters, uh, lobby cards as well. A film cell comes mm. with it as well, a genuine cell from the actual uh, film and a sticker sheet as well. So, you know, it, it comes with quite a lot of stuff and uh, they've got like different, you know, levels of uh, packs that you can get like collector's edition bundle and stuff. You know what? I don't think Joe needs a script booked anyway. I bet you can talk along to the film card and you watch it that much. I, I've probably seen it like three times. Yeah, one Joe's probably week. wrote his own script for the second Yeah, and the sequel. Yeah. The sequel that never happened. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it is. Obviously, it was a bit of a laughing stop back in the day. And today, I think it's kind of got that reputation of being so bad that it's kind of good. You know, it's yeah. definitely got a, a cult following, hasn't it? So nice to see it getting some, uh, some love and a collector's edition 4K re-release coming soon. So I'm going to check that out. I'll put that and all the rest of the stories in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, next weekend, it is going to be a final weekend of October. I can't believe how quickly the months are going by, but that does mean we're going to continue our 400th episode celebrations into this month's Patrons Hangout. Now, uh, for people that maybe haven't been on the Hangout before, it's always so much fun, isn't it, when we get into this time of year, you know, because obviously we always talk about kind of horror stuff near Halloween and then uh, Christmas party will be coming up in a couple of months as well. And we've got a great crew I and mean, there's going to be people who join us for the first time for the Christmas ones this year who weren't on, you know, our patron last year. So if you'd like to join the community, um, now would be a very good time to do it. You're looking forward to the 400th party then that we're going to have with the patrons? I'm going to get the drinks in. I'm going to set the credit card up, buy some games like I always do online. <laughs> no, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, like you say, we don't want to kind of be like, you know, gloating or kind of like, no. you know, what, what what was the word you used at the start of the show? Just kind of like glorifying ourselves. Um, you yeah. know, we really, really, really do appreciate, you know, that people do still listen to us, still support us, people still sponsor us and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's just amazing, and it, it, it does put it into perspective, you know, the voicemails and stuff like that. And yeah, it's you know when I talk about the podcast to people at work and people don't really get it, I try, oh yeah, I do a little bit of a podcast, you know, 
bit of a thing that I do on you know do on the side and stuff. But you know what it it, it means so much more to us. And and, and and it makes it real as well. Like you know, yeah. we're sitting in a room staring at a wall, shouting at a microphone. <laughs> you know, but actually interacting with people and having our whole crew and and you know video and just the support as well. It it just is it's absolutely amazing. You know and it's hard to connect in your head until you actually do something like that and go out and meet people and hear people's voices and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we just love the hangouts as well. So if you'd like to join us for uh, next week's hangout, that is coming up next Sunday evening, 8 p.m. UK time. Um, all the details to uh, sign up will be on our Patreon page. You can head to theretrohour.com, follow the links there. You also get a lot of other perks as well. You get an ad-free version of the podcast every week. It's longer. You get an extra two or three news stories every single week. And also we're about to record our uh, latest episode, number 38, of our patrons-only podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours, uh, where we're going to be going back to the year 1995. So if you want to get that um, in your podcast feed this weekend. Sign up on Patreon right now. All the details are at theretrohour.com and hopefully you can help us reach another 400 episodes of this show. And of course, when we do get new patrons, we induct them into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, and that is the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. So let's induct our newest members. Hall of Fame! And the first one in there this week is a gold member, actually. Welcome to Fabio. Andy Aldrich. Paul Ballard and Brian Downey who all joined us on Patreon over the last week or two and if you'd like to join them and uh, get access to all the stuff that we do on our patrons hangouts and everything like that all the details to sign up right now are at theretrohour.com Right, they're going to chat to this week's special guest, the first of an epic two-part interview all about the legendary Scum Engine with Eric Wilmunder. He's coming up in just a moment. Before we do that, let's take a second to give a massive thank you to this week's sponsor, and that is our wonderful friends at Shopify. Now, if you use Shopify, this sound will be music to your ears. You know what that means, Ravi? Made a sale. That's it. That means you've made money on Shopify. Now, we've talked about this before that Shopify is it's basically the all-in-one commerce platform where you can start, run and most importantly, grow your business as well. Because I know about you guys it feels like everyone's doing some kind of like side hustle at the moment, you know, or maybe even becoming your own boss as well, and Shopify basically takes care of all the stuff that you probably don't want to handle. Now, you know, you've done web development for a living, Ravi, you know, setting up. How much of a hassle is it setting up, you know, traditional kind of e-commerce platforms yourself? It is like a oh, nightmare. An absolute it? nightmare, yeah. And especially when you've got like, you know, point of sale systems and, uh, you know, all-in-one commerce, it, it, it can be a nightmare to set up yourself. And uh, the great thing with Shopify is it, it does it all and you can uh, share your selling across all social media platforms as well. And you've got a 24-7 help. Yeah, which I think that in itself, you know, is uh, just worth the price, isn't it? You know, like having to deal with calls from customers and stuff yourself and support them. And uh, they've got an extensive business course library on there. They are ready to basically support your success every single step of the way. And it covers all these sales channels, you know, shop ready, point of sale systems, e-commerce, even in person as well. And like you said, across um, all the social media marketplaces, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok too. And, uh, you know, I've used Shopify. I've actually been using it recently with a friend of mine who runs a t-shirt printing business. And we've uh, set it all up on there for him. And he's, you know, he's selling like some Christmas T-shirts on there. You know, he's started to sell a load of them over the last couple My of weeks. My friend's got, a, friend uh, got a, a wrapping paper business. And uh, mm. yeah, he started to do that. And also mug printing as well. That was another one. 
Yeah, and a friend of mine a couple of years ago mentioned it before, you know, he's an author and he's trying to do it all like on WordPress before selling stuff. Set him up on Shopify, took all the hassle out of it and basically let him do what he loves, which is writing books. So that's the great thing about Shopify. No matter how big you want to grow, they'll be there to empower you and give you the confidence that you need to take your business to the next level. So if you want to hear a lot of this... Why don't you set yourself up on Shopify right now? And of course, we've got you an incredible offer for just £1 a month. You can try out Shopify yourself. So head to this website right now, shopify.co.uk slash retro hour. All one word, all lowercase, shopify.co.uk slash retro hour. And of course, that will let them know that we've sent you there as well. It really helps out the podcast and take your business to the next level today with our friends at Shopify. And we thank them for their support of our show. Right then, before we hop into the interview, do you want to hear a bit more love, guys? Some more love from our lovely listeners? Let's do it. Hi, this is uh, Tadia Hubach. I've been listening ever since I saw you at Retromessa, or Retrospilmessa, as it was then. It was the first year you were there, I think. I had to check out what this retro hour thing was. I had never heard of it before, and it turned out to be this great podcast with great interviews. And hey, that's what it still is. So... Cheers for the 400, guys, and um, I'm hoping for hundreds more. Hey, everyone, Niels and Wheels here. Congratulations, Retro Hour, on your 400th episode. I realized I've been listening to you for about four years now, and ever since then, I've been experiencing Dan's Commodore Plus 4 adventures, Ravi's Wii U mods, and Joe getting excited about another Resident Evil remake. So keep up the good work, and I look forward to episode 500. So 400 episodes? Oh, man, I thought that this podcast was going to fade into obscurity, just like many other retro podcasts just released from this mortal coil at like 25 episodes. Well, good job. As the cows in Earthworm Jim say, well done. Wow, episode 400, guys. Well done. It feels like only five minutes ago since we're episode 300. Hopefully there'll be many more to come. Keep up the good work, guys. It's fantastic to hear the show every week. And thank you for keeping us all sane over the years. And hopefully, as I said, many more to come. Thanks for having me on the show as well. It's been great fun doing that with you guys. And I'm looking forward to hearing more from you in the future. Happy 400, fellas. I'm still waiting for an episode devoted to Tutankham. But in the meantime, keep cranking them out. And uh, love the show from Australia. It's Andrew. Thanks for uh, everything you guys do. See ya. Hello, fellas. This is Sean Holly from the Ten Pence Arcade Podcast. Congratulations on week reaching 400 episodes. You are definitely the second best retro games podcast behind ours I've ever listened to. Am I kidding? Am I kidding? Yeah, well done, guys. Have a good one, and I uh, hope to sit, uh, listen to another 400. We'll we, we all be 80. Cheers, mate. I love, love you. Bye. Hey guys, it's uh, Chris Winter. Uh, just wanted to um, just thank you for everything you guys do on the Retro Hour. Uh, been listening for a few years now, and it's just made Fridays bearable. You just became part of my lifetime routine in terms of listening in the background whilst I work and just grind my way through a Friday at work. And you guys just continue to do a fantastic and extremely professional job and are just inspirational. Um, yep, love it. Love the interviews. Love the way you cover so much news in so little time. Um, and congratulations on 
episode 400 that's amazing all right keep it up cheers oh thank you chris and uh yeah lots of familiar voices in that little uh, montage as well so uh and lots of people from so many different places too one thing i love about this podcast you know how international we are with our audience the world wide web <laughs> i love <That's> it, it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, more of those voicemails a bit later on in the show uh, but of course uh, thank you so much for uh, for leaving them everyone who uh, was kind enough to uh, leave us a little good luck message thank you very much for that you know a little, uh, little tear in the eye now after listening to those so more of those coming up at the end of the podcast if you did leave one and you haven't heard yours yet then uh, keep listening but of course before that we have got the main event though as we kick off uh, probably the most in-depth interview we've ever done the first of our epic two-parter with the scum lord himself Eric Wilmunder is next on the Retro Hour podcast You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest and what an honour it is to speak to our guest this week as you know Ravi and I huge fans of adventure games grew up you know my, my childhood memories playing LucasArts and Lucasfilm games back in the day some of my fondest childhood memories and it's all made possible thanks to our guest today who was the co-creator of the legendary Scum Engine often known uh, informally as the Scum Lord let's welcome on this week's very special guest <laughs> Eric Wilmunder how's it going Eric? Oh, it's going great. Thank you so much for having me here. Really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on and uh, not only share some memories with us, but also join us for the uh, episode 400 celebrations as well. So nice to have you here. Oh, I'm, I'm quite honored to to be here and, and congratulations on 400 episodes. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a, a wild ride so far, so uh, long may it continue. Now, uh, before we get into some of the incredible games that you've worked on, I mean, it's always nice to kind of go back to day one with our guests and kind of find out, you know, where the, the journey all began for you. So, I mean, do you remember your first ever computer or gaming experience, kind of where it all started? You know, I, I, sometimes I, I think they say that the most important part is showing up and I, I showed up in the right place. So I grew up in Silicon Valley. Uh, one of my neighbors was uh, Doug Engelbart who invented the mouse. And so I just sort of assumed that everybody had neighbors who, worked on computers and invented, you know, groundbreaking technologies mm. in the industry. And as it turned out, my first real hands-on with computers was when I was about 12 years old. The uh, school district uh, in Palo Alto had ordered an HP 3000 and HP couldn't deliver it, but they could deliver a 2000. But a few months later, the 3000 showed up. So they gave the 2000 to the junior high. And one of the teachers decided to, to take a crack at teaching a programming class. So if you can imagine a bunch of 12 year old, a bunch of 12 year old kids typing away on teletypes in the afternoon. And then the real breakthrough is my dad found an old uh, display monitor and an old modem. And my user and password would let me onto the system at night as well. So I would rewrite Star Trek and I would write, oh, we had one we called Overkill, which was basically, you know, launching rocks at each other. And, and trying to destroy each other's cities. And other, other of the 12-year-olds, we were all writing, writing different things. And anything we found all the, I think it was David All had these basic computer game books. And anything we could find, we would type in. And, and I actually wrote some things the uh, teacher asked me to remove because uh, they started to show up around campus. It was, it was like a Mad Lib, but it would generate phrases I'd found in an old Playboy magazine. Nice. <laughs> uh, so we, we agreed. He, it was funny. My friend Alan and I, the teacher called us in after school and 
he commented about, you know, what would your parents think? Well, my dad would have killed me. And Alan's response was, oh, my dad thinks it's great. I learned about string manipulations. I learned about random numbers. I learned about, you know, uh, you know, uh, sentence construction, all these things that the teacher had been trying to teach us in class. And we were applying them just in a way that they didn't necessarily <laughs> approve of. So you must have got like a, a lot of experience then because people mainly in educational settings would have to get access to the computers. And uh, you had that kind of remote dialing up, which um, must have really led to you, you know, homing in your programming skills. Well, what it let me do is though there was Star Trek, which was this very basic game. You had long range scans and you had um, scans of your, I think they were your local quadrant scans and you could fire torpedoes. And and so I started with that as a, a basis, but I quickly learned that there were actually commands on this monitor that my my dad had found in a junkyard and gotten it gotten it fixed up that would move the cursor. You could set the cursor position. So I started rewriting that game and the long range scan would always be in the upper left hand corner and the quadrant scan would be up in the right hand corner. And anytime it went to display text, it would display it in the lower half. So it was completely customized that it would only work on this computer and on this monitor. But it sort of taught me how to begin to manipulate, you know, screen space and how to modify other people's programs. And then I would go and I'd write new weapons for it. So I had a, like, a, I think I called it a Nova bomb or something like that. So if a Klingon was hiding behind a, a sun in a, one of the quadrants, I could actually cause the sun to go Nova and it would chain react and destroy any Klingons that happened to be in the, in the vicinity when it went off. So you know, anything that if you can imagine a 12 year old would, would think about doing, this was my sandbox. And I just had as much fun as I could with it. Well, I know that you um, put yourself through college writing games and you were involved with um, automated simulations. I believe um, later went on to become epics. How did that involvement happen then? And how did you start writing games commercially? You know, I, I came home one summer, so it must've been the summer of my sophomore year. And I probably had been a month at home and hadn't, you know, done anything. And I think it was my mom told me that I should should go find a job. And I went to the back of one of the computer magazines that I got. And there were two companies. One was uh, oh, Strategic Simulations that was, that was nearby. And I contacted them and they said, oh, sure, we could arrange something. Can you come by next week? And then I called Automated and they said, oh, could you come by this afternoon? So I went with the one that, uh, that was nearby they had been uh, the two founders, so uh, Jim Connolly and John Freeman mm. were, were the game designers there, and they'd written primarily on TRS-80s, and, but had written in BASIC. And so I had lots of familiarity with BASIC from my days uh, working on the HP systems. Uh, I don't remember if I'd already previously played around with Atari 800s. Uh, before then, I'd actually played on an Exidy Sorcerer, which is a, a, a Z80-based processor. And, um, but, you know, I, they were basically set me up with a machine and I think a floppy drive and gave me the TRS-80 code and said, hey, let's see what you can do with that. So during the last month or two of my summer vacation, I think I'd finished the first game and got started onto the second game. And then they would fly me up from LA while I, where I was in college and I would just bring floppy disks and it's like, here's the latest one. And people would go through and play them and test them. 
And I was very, I have to say how fortunate I was because, you know, the very first one I did all the sounds, I did all the graphics, I did all the programming. And then by the second one, I think they said, oh, you know, they probably looked at the the art and it's like, we'd really like to team you up with an artist. And they uh, teamed me up with uh, Paul Ritchie, who was his since then it was one of the ushers at my my wedding but he uh went on to start toys for toys for bob so all the uh uh you know i think star control and Mur- murder on the Zindernoof and uh you know all the games were basically you'd you'd you know you'd put a, your your um your plastic toy on the portal and your you know the your characters would go into the game and things like that mm. that's all the work that that paul had developed um, at Toys for Bob. So he now became my artist. And so that just really taught me, you know, the, the benefits of working with, with people on a team is, you know, when you looked at, at the first game I worked on, my main character, you know, when standing around looked like a dead cactus. And when he was flying in his rocket suit, looked like a live cactus. And then when we went on and did Crush, Crumble and Chomp, which was sort of a version of the creature that ate Sheboygan, the board game, but you know, you would play the Godzilla type character and the King Kong type character and go into cities. And basically at the start of the game, you'd be going against civilians and then policemen and police cars. And then as the game progressed, you'd be going up against, you know, uh, infantry men and, and tanks and pretty much you were always going to lose, but how long could you make it last? And whether you could, you know, how much of the city you could, you could engulf in flames. <laughs> but Paul did the artwork for that. And that was just uh, light years beyond what I was able to do. So during a year or so of college, I think I did close to, to a dozen games and expansion packs. And what was funny at the time is I remember going to a presentation and being told something like, well, you know, if you, you know, with a degree in computer science, because at the time I was an electrical engineer. Yeah. And they were saying, you know, a degree in computer science, you might earn $25,000 a year. And I was kind of going, well, I'm making about twice that. And I'm just doing it part time. Imagine if I did this full time. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And it, it was pretty amazing as well, because they packaged the games like, you know, real games at the time. Other people were kind of packaging them in, in bags and, uh, oh, you know. Yeah. You know, Xerox, Xerox a manual. And here we had box covers and we had real artists. I think I may have the name wrong. I think it might've been George Barr, I think did a lot of the the cover art for the boxes and the back of the boxes had pictures of what the games looked like. And it was really, it wasn't a decade ahead of the industry, but it certainly was ahead of the industry. And there were a couple of times which were fun where, uh, you know, when a new game would come out, when I was in the Bay area, it's like, okay, Hey, we're doing a, you know, a big production run. And I'd go down into the warehouse with everybody from the company and we'd, we'd be building the games, uh, you know, ourselves and putting the, the discs in while the discs were, you know, the disc copying machines were running. So we would, I got to sort of see what the manufacturing side was, uh, in the game industry as well. Well, what fascinated you so much about cinema? I know you joined uh, USC and there were a lot of kind of influential people in the film industry, uh, hanging around there. What was it like to be in that environment? My freshman year, as I mentioned, I started EE. My dad was an electrical engineer. He he worked for Stanford on the linear accelerator where they were firing various particles down a two-mile tube to see what would happen when they hit targets and they'd come apart. So he wanted me to, to follow in his footsteps. 
I had initially been signed up as EE and then switched to computer science. And at the same time, I was fascinated with, with cinema. And it's what's funny about it is I didn't really discover cinema until my teens. I think I could name the six movies I saw as a child because it was such a, a, a rare occasion. And then when I became a teen and started working, we would, you know, I, I sort of discovered the cinema, which was a wonderful time. You know, it's like, you know, when Jaws was coming out and, you know, it's like, I sort of look at the sixties and the early seventies as kind of, you know, the doldrums of the, of the movie industry. And then there was some amazing stuff going on uh, in the seventies. And so here I was uh, in LA at USC, you know, at the, you know, walking by the, the cinema school all the time and in a dorm with a bunch of people who were cinema students. And the first thing I noticed is that they would all be doing their projects in our building and looking for people to be extras and cast members and, and things like that. So they were, you know, a very animated bunch. And so uh, at one point I was approached and asked if I could do some special effects for their movies and to do credits on the computer screen that would scroll off. And so I did a few of those. And then I, you know, I learned more about the cinema classes. And so I just would go over and, and audit the classes. You know, it, it was seeing behind the scenes. that was so amazing. So I think it was Arthur Knight taught what well, we called it either Tuesday night or Thursday night at the movies because he would, they would have the whole theater and he would bring in a guest. So he would bring in uh, Sam Jones, who was in Flash Gordon or uh, LQ Jones, who was in the wild bunch. Steve Martin brought pennies from heaven. Jack Lemon brought missing. I think it was Gary Kurtz brought in empire strikes back uh, a couple months before uh, it came out theatrically. Mm. And what was amazing is you'd get to watch the movie and then they'd take Q&A for an hour and a half or so. And this was everything I you know, wanted to know. My, my dad was actually uh, friends with uh, Walt Disney's brother, Roy. As a kid, I remember wanting to go to Disneyland, but instead being uh, dragged down to the Disney studios and actually seeing them making uh, The Jungle Book. And, you know, getting a tour of the animation department and seeing footage from that. And so for me, this was the closest thing to uh, seeing what the movie industry was like. And it, it was always an area that I had a lot of, of, of interest in and passion for. And so then the crossover, you know, both at Atari, where we had relationships with the Lucas companies and then the Lucas companies themselves, was sort of like the accumulation of all the the things that I, you know, dreamed and hoped for. It sounds like you had some really good insight there. I mean, how did those kind of worlds come together, though, like the video game world and, and cinema? What was that kind of relationship, the connection at the time like? You know, it, it was interesting because, for example, when I was at Atari, it mo- mostly involved licensing. And so I remember uh, one day Clint Eastwood was walking around because we were doing uh, a Firefox game based on, on his movie. I think the most interesting part was where, you know, Atari had put up a million or two million and put up some some seed money uh, to start the the games group at Lucas, and so I got a chance to sort of you know see these guys going by uh, within the Atari organization and got to know them sort of casually and saw some of their work, which was fascinating, and uh, what it what it showed me was there was this place where you could, 
you know, you could sort of meld these two things because I'd never really seriously thought of myself as going into the movie industry. And yet the technologies were all coming together. If you look at the breakthroughs and special effects going on in the Star Wars movies, it was all about, uh, you know, computer controlled models and computer controlled cameras. And, and so you could repeat a scene. So you'd, you know, you'd, you know, you'd be flying a camera by a spaceship with just the engines on and you'd run it by again where it would have other lighting and then you'd run it by again and you'd, you know, you could create the mat, which would then be used to separate that spaceship and the lighting from the stars and everything else behind it. And so there was this interesting merger of the, of the technologies where computers were getting involved more and more in cinema. So what, what I got to see with the, the Lucas companies when I joined there was that not only were, was so much of the special effect work being technically driven, uh, David Fox, who was one of the original members of that group, had actually shared an office with Lauren Carpenter, who created the Genesis planet-evolving effect from uh, Wrath of Khan that apparently, you know, it was so good. I think they used it three times in, in other movies, you know, the, you know, uh, that the, now the Klingons were interested in it in the next movie, but uh, that was all based around, you know, fractals. There was a concept there, which was, well, the, the two groups, sort of the movie group and the games group. And we were always very jealous, but, you know, we we put them up on pedestals. We had very high opinions of them. Mm. And it was kind of, it was fascinating because we got the opposite, which is, you know, they were working, you know, they could spend an entire day generating an effect for a movie. And we were trying to generate an image on a screen every 15th of a second. And they thought that was remarkable. And so it kind of, it kind of tickled that, you know, we both had this amazing mutual respect for each other and maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome, like, oh, we're not worthy of, of what you guys do. But finding out that it, it, that respect was mutual and went both ways led to my first project there, which was uh, working on the fractal engine and getting fractals running on a, I guess the Atari 800 was like a 1.7 megahertz processor. And I don't think you'd even have one of those around your house anymore uh you know things are now running a thousand times faster with gpus along you know alongside them doing the graphics so and was uh was that for star raiders uh star raiders 2 that work was on for um well dave did the original work on rescue for fractalus i worked on a piece called coronas rift but yeah star raiders 2 was an interesting project i i joined atari got i had two job offers after college. One was to go to NASA to work on an airborne uh, observatory. I think it was the Kuiper Airborne Observatory. It was a like a 707 or 727 with a telescope inside it. And then the other one was to opportunity was to go work for Atari in corporate research. And that was really my my long-term dream was you know going there because I was expecting to see you know programmers in white lab coats standing behind you know, one-way mirrors, watching game players so we could sort of study them and learn how to make games. And it wasn't at all like that. We were just, we were writing the games we wanted to make for ourselves that we thought would be fun. And uh, Atari had actually uh, fronted some money for like R&D with uh, George Lucas back then. 
Correct. So, so they had put up money and that was, you know, so my two years at Atari, one year was in corporate research where uh, I was working on a game called Gossip, which had an interesting model behind it. It was, uh, you were basically trying to be, trying to be a popular person. This was a design that had been brought to me to execute. Uh, the model was like a three-dimensional series of points in space, each with springs under different tensions. And then you'd make moves which would change the tensions of the springs and you'd throw it up in the air and it would get to some new equilibrium. Well, that was not exactly what I had dreamed of for games. And so after I'd got it running, uh, I was planning to take uh, my girlfriend, now my wife, uh, to Europe for six weeks. But before I left, CoinOp had heard about projects I was doing on my spare time, which was making rotating planets and flying spaceships and flying over terrain. And so they brought me over into CoinOp where I worked on Star Raiders 2. So I worked on that for close to a year. And unfortunately, at the same time, Atari had bought the license for Last Starfighter. And there was a team that was working on a game based on Last Starfighter. And there were, I think, four or five people on that team. I was a sole programmer working on my project. Well, when Star Last Starfighter didn't do well in the theaters, they needed to rebrand it. And so here I was working on Star Raiders 2. Well, they rebranded Last Starfighter as Star Raiders 2. And it was like, that was, that was a blow. Mm. And then at the same time, I think when I joined Atari, there were about 8,000 employees and they, they kept on having you know cuts and layoffs. I think they were down to about 500 employees when my number came up. So the benefit, though, was I was able to use that work uh, in 3D models and everything else for what I thought was just a dog and pony show at the Lucas companies. But it turned out they were interviewing me. They just hadn't told me. They, they asked me to come up and show them some of my 3D work. And so I came up for an afternoon. And then about a week later, they asked me if I wanted to work there. So I asked when they would like to interview me. And they said, oh, we already did. <laughs> yeah, well, will you accept the offer? <laughs> so probably the easiest interview I've ever had. Yeah, I was going to say the planets aligned for you a bit there, I think, didn't they? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, at what point did you meet Ron Gilbert then? I mean, and do you remember your initial impressions of Ron? You know, Ron, I think, came on very shortly after I did. So uh, Noah Falstein, who I think has been on one of your podcasts, yeah. had done a design for a game originally titled Alien Technology. I think that was just a, a working game. But the idea was you're going down to these planets and and there's they're alien war machines and you're collecting technology from these different different uh, uh, different tanks uh, and flying saucers. And Ron came in pretty shortly after I was there, maybe you know as short as a month or two months. And Ron was going to work on the Commodore sixty four version. I was going to work on the Atari eight hundred version. And you know Ron had a Pretty amazing background. He'd worked, I think, for a company called HES, Human Engineering Software, something like that. And he'd worked on extensions to the Commodore 64 Basic. So he had learned quite a bit about interpreters and, and such, which was an area which I wasn't that familiar with. But you know, he he was a lot of fun to work with. We we shared an office for, I don't know, half dozen years, quite quite a long time. And you know, we have very different personalities. Ron is, uh, you know, really amazing public speaker, very dynamic. You know, one time we, uh, one of our coworkers was going to be giving a, 
a demo at a computer club in Berkeley. And so we decided, oh, let's go along and we'll watch. And we were halfway over the bridge to Berkeley and I was driving and Rod said, you know, isn't that Jim's car pulled over? And we went there and Jim had a flat tire. And so we were trying to figure out if he could use my tire. And Jim just said, I, I can't leave my car here. Can you give the demo? So he hands us a box of floppy disks and we show up at this at this club meeting and Ron just did an amazing job. He he just chatted away while I popped in floppy disks and you know just did directories to see what I could find and ran whatever I could or displayed whatever whatever artwork we could find. And it was an incredibly well received presentation that was entirely <laughs> off the cuff. Wow. Yeah, Ron had Ron had worked at a radio station in at his college. College Town. They had a you know a small college radio station, and so he was doing the morning show. So he was very fast, very fast on his feet uh, uh, conversationally. He brought that energy. Exactly. Yeah. I think one of his characters was named Jacques Strop. Nice. But, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, let's talk about um, some of the projects that you worked on at Lucasfilm. I mean, one really revolutionary and very cutting-edge game was a Habitat, which I believe was actually the first attempt ever at a large-scale commercial virtual community, what we call today a MMORPG game. And that was really ambitious, working with Quantum Leap, which was the precursor to AOL that ran on the, the Commodore 64 platform. So what do you remember about working on that project, and how did that develop, and how did that benefit the development of what would become the Scum Engine? You know, it was there were there were a lot of parallels there. So, the the team on the Lucas side was was Chip Morningstar, who's still probably you know one of the most uh, most talented and uh, and skilled programmers that I know. Uh, Randy Farmer, who uh, another wonderful person, and so Chip was primarily focused on building the system. And so they, the, the, and, and the, the global world, Randy was focused initially on the telecommunication side. So getting the modems working and getting things talking between the Commodore 64s and the uh, computers in Virginia. My job was the graphics engine. And so, you know, I was taking everything we had in our, our pantry. So we had an animation system, which, which we had used on uh, and it developed on projects like Labyrinth and uh, is one by Charlie Kellner, uh, where you went around inside caves. Oh, the Eidolon. So Charlie had built a cell animation system and the cell being based around traditional animation cells that you might find in, uh, in, in a Disney or a Warner Brothers, where, for example, you could have a set of walking legs and then you could put a torso cell on top of that. And then you could put arm cells that are swinging back and forth. And the primary concept, and then put a, put a head on top. So the primary concept there was you could save a lot of room because you don't need, you can mix and match the arms and the legs and the torsos with other, and the different heads. You can mix and match these parts and then, uh, and get them to work together. And then basically it had a very simple programming language for, for animating those. So, my role was initially getting the animation system working on the characters and then building a, a system for drawing the backgrounds. And the Habitat backgrounds were a little tricky because the Commodore 64, which, you know, it wasn't 
the first machine I'd worked on. I'd worked on the Atari 800. So I sort of had to teach myself the C64 had different ways to manipulate and use different colors with a an additional data layer that you didn't see. It's, it's, it's hard to describe, but it allowed you to take certain colors and you could use them in certain places on the screen by writing into a secondary color plane. But all of that secondary plane was on very big boundaries. It's like on, on character size boundaries. So getting that system to work so you could design the world and minimize the amount of data necessary to have to send that data uh, down from the main servers and then building the world. And so as I got the animation system done and the background system done, then I sort of became the natural person to start building the world. And, uh, and as I pointed out, I'm not an artist. So we had artists drawing the things in the world and I was just using them as building blocks to develop the world. Mm. And I have to say though, many months into that, we had set it up so we could teach other people how to build the world. And that's when the project really opened up for me because it went from a world where I, I knew everything. So it's, it's like, you know, you know how the movie's going to end because you've read the book. So that maybe the movie's not as interesting. Yeah. In my case, I, I had seen the world, I'd built the world. And for me, the real interest cranked up when we actually got to see uh, the users building the world. And my, my goal all along had been, for example, we gave each user an inside of a house that they could rearrange their furniture and an outside they could rearrange. But I always thought that the tur turnstile could be the most interesting part where as you generate money, you can buy more world, whatever that is, regions in our case. And you could do interesting things with these, but you put a turnstile out in front and people can basically buy their way into this piece of, of terrain that you've built. Mm. And let the users build the terrain and let them make it interesting. And then the economy is there. The, the more that they can generate from turnstiles, from people visiting their interesting world that they've generated, the, uh, the more world that they can buy. And then they could hire gardeners to put in their trees and they could, you know, you know, they could hire architects to design, you know, let, let the, the economy of the world uh, build itself out for the future. And then one of the key things though there was, we were really given a lot of free reign to innovate. And the original uh, Habitat design docs was basically one male, one female avatar. And so the first thing I did is I said, you know, that's that's way too limiting because we're going to have you know, a half dozen characters on the screen. We need to be able to detect them from one another. So the first thing I did is found a way to be able to pattern into the uh, into their textures so that you could have you know, checkerboard pants or striped pants or a blue shirt or a, a pink shirt, you know, and, and then there were other things where when we, when you'd pick up an object, because we had the cell-based technology that could offset subsequent cells, like if you carried something, I put in flags, so, you know, boxes you would carry with your arms straight out, but if you had a, a magic wand, your arm would swing back and forth. But then the final thing was, well, we want even more variety. And since everything was built by attaching things to other things, I one day I took the head off the avatar and had the artist draw me a, a different head. And I found a way to basically be able to attach it. So now you can not only customize your character, male, female, change their height, change the texture of their clothing, you can now completely change your character. And I think even the final step was replacing your avatar entirely. 
So instead of it being a walking, talking person, it could be a little wind-up penguin. Or I created this spider that it would actually wear the avatar heads. And it was, I think I'd seen the, uh, oh, the thing with Kurt Russell in it, where there's that nasty, uh, the alien turns into like this spider with, with human you know, with human features on it. I thought, well, that'd be kind of fun. And what was interesting is years later, I was brought in by ILM. They were putting a bid together for Snow Crash, which was basically, you know, imagine that one of the precursors to uh, uh, Ready Player One. Mm. And I was being brought in as a consultant for, you know, what would the avatars be like? And my view was you cannot go far enough. If you can imagine it, Somebody will design that someday, you know, whether it's designed to offend you, to entice you, to humor you, you know, it's basically think of it like a Halloween costume contest where every time you turn, you're going to see something else amazing. Do you think that the uh, kind of background and interest in film helped, you know, visualize and and develop the engine uh, with with stuff like actors and scenes and, you know, um, being able to create different costumes and having that kind of structure in, in film and then applying that to an engine so other people could use it easily. Well, I think that that segues well into, into scum because that was really, you know, the, the, some of the basis as the scum system was being developed. So Ron and I uh, were again, sharing, sharing an office together during that development time. And there were even aspects where, if you look at the scum language itself, it is almost like writing a movie script. You know, if you if you look at a script and and you know, you'll have all the characters' lines, but then in between the lines will be all the direction. You know, the character walks over to the door, you know, the you know, he opens the window, what it may be. And if you look at much of the structure of of the scum language, it is that, but in a programming matter. It's like walk Dr. Fred to door. You know, it literally, that is what the language looks like. You know, say line, Dr. Fred, you know, here's some text. And that's what he'd say. You know, uh, you know, uh, do animation, Dr. Fred, reach for door handle, whatever. You know, it's that type of language that was based around how you might direct, you know, uh, and do directorial scenes in, in a movie. And I remember at one point, I think Steve Arnold was the president of our group. And his background was... Uh, he'd been at Atari as well. He ran the, I think, the Atari Program Exchange. Uh, his background was as a as a psychologist, and Ron was trying to figure out the crossing the line between interactive and non-interactive because clearly the cinematic world is non-interactive. You're just watching it, but we were going into a world where you're walking characters around and doing things, but on occasion you you lose interactivity. And we had, I think, maybe even three or more layers or levels of interactivity where some, for example, when you would tell a character to go walk to a door or to open a door and they'd walk over to it and they'd reach out and open it, you would have the interaction where, hey, when they're walking, you could still change their direction and things like that. But once they reached the door, the interactivity stopped for a second and then the scripting took over. So mm. we would then trigger the animation to reach out for the door. We'd trigger the animation for the door to open. We'd trigger the sound effect for the door sound for the door opening. We'd trigger the character steps through and then arrives on the other side. But there were various layers we could do it where some of them we'd leave the cursor still on the screen 
so it, it almost still felt like, oh, I'm, I'm still driving this character, even though for that brief period of time, your ability to interact with the characters had been taken away. Other times, for example, in Maniac Mansion, when you'd ring the doorbell, you'd cut to another room inside the house and you'd see, I forget if it was Weird Ed or Dr. Fred, somebody would would be in their room doing something and then they'd get up and you'd see them walking through the house. And you could actually begin to learn what the interior of the house looked like by watching you know, the characters walk through it themselves. And in those scenes, you had no interaction at all. So you take the cursor away entirely as you'd watch those, you know, the other characters uh, walking through the house. Mm. And so I remember Ron trying to figure out well, what, what is, what do you call that? You know, what do they call that in movies? Well, they don't call that anything in movies because movies are non-interactive. You're always not interactive. <laughs> and so if you go to a scene, you just, you know, you just film another scene. But the comparisons we were looking for at the time were like, well, when you're playing Ms. Pac-Man and you just finished a level and then you get this scene where, you know, Ms. Pac-Man is animating being like being chased with a ghost and then she'd eat, you know, a, a, a power pill or whatever and turn around and chase the, vo- the ghost. And really it was like a break for you as the player. But I think Steve Arnold just said, well, you know, you're cutting away from this and it's a scene well, let's just call it a cutscene, mm. and basically, it was just an invented term. There was no term used for that prior to to that question being asked, and Steve just came up with a word that made sense, and that ended up going into both the language and sort of the vernacular for what do you call a non-interactive scene, you know, in a in an interactive video game. I'm interested in the. Um kind of the, the backstory and on the development of Scum as well. Because, I mean, how important was it to use assembly language and C to obviously speed up the engine but also offer some standardization there? Because obviously it was running on different platforms. Well, talking about the teams and assembly language, there's a very important aspect of that. And I, I mentioned uh, Chip Morningstar, who I worked on with, with Habitat. And Habitat was written with every object was a little piece of assembly language. And assembly language is basically the lowest level that you can write to to the processor. But every object is this thing that can be moving around in memory. So so we had a system called a heap where you'd store all the things that are in a room, like or you know, like all the costumes and the sound effects and the animations and the rooms themselves would all get thrown into this chunk of memory. And every once in a while you might move things in memory because I need to take something out that's old so I can put something new in. So you had to write in this very specific way where you were always using offsets. Every time you wanted to get to an animation, you'd go and ask for the address of the animation, and then you'd go, okay, and I need this offset into that to get to this piece of information. But you always had to assume that while you ask for it, you basically, you own it, it's not going to move, but the minute that you free it up, it could be someplace completely different the next time you 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 access it. So you always had to start your process of working with any of these objects by basically asking for their address. So what it meant was Habitat using assembly language, any of that code could could blow up very easily uh, with with a flaw. But I think one of the lessons from that was moving to Scum. 
is Chip, and because of, also because Ron had the background in in writing the extensions to the basic that was on the Commodore 64, Ron had the idea of, well, let's create a language for it. And so that's where the scum language was created, mm-hmm. where instead of these commands that the processor executes directly, you instead have what are called opcodes or operation codes, which are, you know, here's a byte. And if the byte holds the number 27, a 27 is a command that says, I'm going to walk the actor someplace. So if you find a 27, then the next two bytes are the actor number. And then the next two bytes are the the one loca- X location and the next two bytes are the Y location. And then your processor would come along and it would grab that 27 and go, you know, what is my command? And it would go, oh, I go look it up in a table and I go execute the walk command. Hmm. And the benefit of that was that there were only about 120 commands in the the scum language, but there were 256 possible values in a byte. So what it meant was half the commands didn't exist. So we could, anytime a command showed up and it was like, that's not below 120, that's a mistake. We could stop the processor and go, hey, there's a bug. Let's figure out what the bug is. Where in Habitat, every command is a valid command. And so the only thing you knew was suddenly your computer would be crashing, but you couldn't track it back to where did that mistake happen? Where in Scum, because basically you had 50-50 odds that the command was either good or the command was bad, that you could very easily track back to when, when did it go south? Oh, okay, now I can debug that and debug that command and get it get it working. Where... On Habitat, when something went bad, it usually meant you had to reboot the computer mm. and try to repeat it and try to put debugging information into it so you could try to figure out what caused it to crash this time. So I've always felt like you know Habitat could have sort of learned the future lesson from Habitat and had been an interpreted language would have been a tremendous savings. But you also asked about the benefits. And let me tell you this story because your, your background with the Amiga mm. and I, when... Uh, so I was managing what we called cross-platform. So initially, we were developing for the Commodore 64. I did the first IBM PC version of Maniac. And then eventually, over time, we moved all of our tools because our tools were based on the Sun workstations, which uh, which we which we had uh, been developing our uh, Atari 800 and Commodore 64 games. But eventually, the PC became powerful enough that we could run the compilers and the other tools on the PC. So we rewrote those those tools to run on the PC. And what we would do is when I would we'd work on the Amiga, the game itself is nothing more than data. You know, the images on those floppy disks, there's a directory of, you know, okay, here's the 127 costumes you have, the 200 sound effects you have, the you know the 100 rooms you have there's a directory of how to get to all of those and some of them tell you to go to you know if you want the sound effect it's located in room 30 and uh and it's if you and it's this many bytes into room 30 so you can find all those assets but it's all just data mm. and the great thing about going to the Amiga is the other thing that I manage is called the interpreter. And that's the thing that plays the game by reading and executing the data. So 
we had the scum, which was technically was the compiler that would tokenize the language into those byte commands. And then I wrote the interpreter that would take those those tokens and turn them back into commands that the interpreter would execute and then draw the characters and load the the sound effects and load the rooms and execute the scripts. Actually, Ron most, wrote most of the scripting side of the executables there. I was mostly doing the, the drawing and loading and memory management and all the other aspects. But what it meant was the interpreter was this pretty small chunk of code. And so when we went from, say, the PC to the Amiga, that's all they had to rewrite initially to get their engine working was they didn't have to change the game. They didn't, you know, just don't play the sounds. Just, you know, but but you can play the 16-color IBM PC artwork on the Amiga. We're going to redraw it. But before we redraw it, let's make sure that the game works. Mm. And then when we change the art, all we have to worry about is, hey, we know everything else is working. Let's make sure, you know, now let's improve the art. So I had a really good engineer, uh, Dan Filner. I think was the Amiga programmer at the time. And I'd give him the C code, which the game was based on. And and so C is a higher level language. It's an object-oriented language, which just doesn't really mean anything to this conversation. But it was a powerful language. But then underneath it, you could write back an assembly language to make things faster. So something you wanted to optimize, you would handwrite at the computer level. But there was always this higher level C version that you would start with to make sure it worked. So I could give the code to the Amiga programmer and say, hey, just turn on all the C code. Everything should work. And each day for a week or two, it was like, okay, here's this issue. Because the Amiga stored data in a different order than the PC did. So we had to write sort of wrappers to flip the order of, of the bytes and things like that. So we'd, we'd, we'd write that code and then uh, we'd put it back in the PC side so that any, any issues we'd find on the Amiga would now end up in the parent code on the PC so that we could fix that problem and it would go away for all future versions. And we went through this for about a week. It's like, okay, I'm getting a cursor working and getting the keyboard working. And then one day I just got a phone call and from Dan, he's going, how do I get through the X in the library? And it took me a second going, what are you talking about? You know, what X and what, you know, what, what do you, and I realized he'd actually played the game far enough where he was now playing the game. It's like, once he got the interpreter working well enough, then the game is just, you know, all that data, you can believe in it. We already built the game. It, it already works on our trusted tools. Now we just get this one small piece of code, the interpreter, on your computer, and then the game will just work. Then after it's there, then we can make all the enhancements, put in the Amiga digital sounds, put in the 32-color background art, redo the characters, do better music, etc. But initially, the key thing is getting a system that's that's solid, and we could start with all that data that we had, uh, we already trusted, before changing everything. It was a great way. So having that interpreted language meant that literally the game you had on the Amiga was the same game you had on the PC game-wise versus, I remember, I think it was CinemaWare did, what was the game, Rocket Ranger? They did one where, you know, they did a flying game and on the Amiga, great sound and great graphics. And then I remember seeing like the Commodore 64 version of it 
And all it really was was taking the name of the product and then go building, you know, something else. And yeah. that's where, you know, port was is a four-letter word, and that's literally what you were getting there. We were looking at building a game that took as much advantage of the platform as we could, which is why you, you know, mentioned earlier that you had 12 floppy disks on the Amiga version of Monkey Island because we had a great game and then we really wanted to make sure it was truly taking the best advantage of the hardware that was there. Yeah, I mean, I bought a hard disk to play Monkey Island too. You know, it was a, because it was that fully featured. You're right. I mean, there's nothing cut out of it. You know, it was, it was the game that you got on the PC as well. And, you know, the, the power of Scum made it so it was possible to migrate between machines. And I think also the fact that the engine was so, versatile as well. I and one of the other games that I loved back then was Loom. And we had uh, Brian Moriarty yeah. on the podcast a couple of years ago as well. And that was a really interesting interface that that game had. I mean, obviously that kind of changed the scum engine up somewhat because rather than having the usual commands that you had in many of the, the LucasArts games, you had that kind of uh, that experimental interface where Bobbin actually played his spells on his on his staff so what did you think of that title then and, and the way that Brian used the Scum Engine in that game? You know, I I think that if if I wanted anything, it would be for that game to be bigger. And I think that Brian had come over to us from, I think it was Infocom, where he'd worked on a lot of text-based games and amazingly creative projects with tremendous depth. I think he worked on Trinity, might have been one of his the products he worked on. And... I think when he moved over to using the scum system, he wanted to do it all. You know, he, he wanted to have the same amount of control that he had over a text-based game as he did over a graphics game. And that's like having a writer wanting to have the same amount of control over their book as they would if it was a movie. But a movie takes you know hundreds of people and costume designers and musicians and all these other things. And so I think Brian was really trying to do as much as he could, and it's a super admirable job. I love the interface, the uh, the fact that it took, you know, what Scum had developed as sort of an as inventory management system and the verb interface and turned it into, uh, basically turned spells into your inventory. And that's actually one of the areas that I probably would have liked to see because I don't think Loom had it, which would have been a screen that shows you your inventory of spells that you have mm. and it, as you learn them and a description of of what each of these spells does because then you could go oh okay the system is learning these and basically if it became your spell book now it could be it's been a long time trust me since i played loom but i would have the same way you had an inventory screen uh where you could see you know in the i'm going to say more traditional scum games where you could see the items and there's a kind of a funny story about that uh because we had, you know, in the early ones, we, we'd have the text description. It'd be great to have had the, the, uh, the same thing true, uh, true in Loom. But there was so much, you know, he was really, really pushing the system hard, you know, graphically, animation wise. I just, you know, it, but it was really, it was his first project out the gate. And I would have loved to have seen a larger, a larger team on that because yes, he was working with musicians and he was working with artists. But I think Brian really, you know, tried to shoulder the burden of doing all of the the scripting work on that on his own, and it probably would have really helped to have had, you know, I think most of the other games would have a team of of four four scripters or more 
just filling things in. And I think that that's where I think a lot of people find the depths in the scum games was, you know, the, the environments were so rich with objects because you could very easily go, Oh, there's the artist drew uh, something up on the wall. Well, a scripter can come through really quickly and mark that item and give it a name and you can read it and they could write something funny about it. And it just makes the world that much, that much more, uh, that much more rich with all of these things, even if they're not directly tied to the game, they're part of that game experience, which can lead to the, you know, all the hours of, of gameplay enjoyment. And, uh, and I would have liked to have seen more of that. I, I, and the other thing is, I think there were, a couple of other designs to continue on in that universe. I think there was a, a design concept for Forge, which was basically where Loom was the uh, the the guild of the the weavers. Uh, Forge was going to be the guild of the iron workers, yeah. and there was going to be another character that in that same magical environment that was going to expand it. And that would have been really interesting to see to sort of take and build on Brian's universe that he created but then see how it could be expanded uh, with new concepts there. Yeah, I'm still hoping that one day he will do the follow-ups because um, when we spoke to him, he said he's still got some ideas. So that would be incredible to to finally see him follow up those stories one day. And maybe it can be in a book form. I yeah. don't know. Mm, yeah. I don't don't know what Brian's up to these days. Oh, but I was going to mention one way that the uh, inventory system was kind of funny was, uh, I forget which of the monkeys it was, but the first version of Monkey Island had text-based inventory. So it would just, it would, you know, it's like, it would say, you know, uh, key to the monkey ear or whatever. Yeah. But, but there was that whole joke in there where you pull the key to the monkey ear out of your, your pocket and it's a giant Q-tip. Yeah. <laughs> and then you go in and you, you know, you clean the monkey's ears and, and then that's what opens it up. Well, the problem was when we did the newer versions of that game, we had a graphical or an iconic interface. And I don't remember how we solved it because you didn't want to display a Q-tip because it would give away the joke, you know, (laughs) (laughs) in the later game. Things evolve and there are always, you know, things that, you know, the scripters would have to find ways to move, you know, move around and learn around as we, as the games evolved. Well, Eric, I think that would be a really good place to pause things until next week as obviously we're going to get more into those huge games that used the Scum Engine, Monkey Island, of course, the massive sequel, Monkey Island 2, and I hear more about how it developed throughout the 90s until it got discontinued in 1997. So uh, we'd love to have you back on next week to get part two. But in the meantime, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, we'll hear more from you next week. My pleasure as well. Thank you. to Ravi, Joe and Dan on reaching 400 episodes of one of the best shows on the internet, The Retro Hour. I've been listening every week, religiously, for years now. Never miss it. Got the best news, best guests. Cannot knock it. But you are missing me. I think you should get me on to talk about how I managed to build my own retro 8-bit games console from scratch with no previous electronics experience. It's also the fastest 8-bit games console. That is the Usebox. Um, yeah, so... Big congrats, guys. Here's to North 400 episodes. Thank you. Hi, Dan, Ravi and Joe. Uh, Brett Alexander from Australia here. 
Um, I started listening to your podcast at the start of the pandemic and eventually I was able to become a Patreon supporter about a year ago. So I try and lurk on the Patreons hangout as often as possible, but it's either 5 or 6 a.m. here when it starts and I'm in no condition to be seen on camera and even speak coherently, but I still find it very enjoyable just to lurk and listen. Anyway, congratulations on the 400 episodes. I'm sure it's not easy to produce that number of episodes and make them all interesting, informative and entertaining. But somehow you guys do it every week, after week, after week. So you should be very proud of that. So congratulations again. Well done. And keep those episodes coming as long as you guys still enjoy doing it. Hello, this is Edwin van Roosterkamp, creator of BASMX. Congratulations, guys, with recording your 400 episode. Not long, you'll be recording your thousand. <laughs> At which point, the Retro Hour podcast possibly retro itself. Anyway, keep the good work going and thank you for the great content you record. Um, I love listening to your episodes and I'm looking forward to what will come in the future. Thank you very much, guys. Retro Hammer here. Congratulations, chaps. 400 episodes. Well deserved. Many more to come, I hope. You guys have worked your arses off since... Well, how many years now? I've been listening since the uh, what third, maybe fourth episode, and been enjoying the interviews, uh, keeping up with the news. Um, sent plenty of little uh, news snippets in myself. Uh, now uh, enjoying the after hours episodes, and of course the uh, monthly Patreon meetings that we're all having, which are a great crack. Uh, looking, or sorry, been enjoying the episodes with the uh, Patreon guys on there. You know, Ashley and all that lot doing bloody brilliant. You know, we might actually have a fourth member, member the way you guys are going. Either way, keep the hard work up, mate. And looking forward to listening to the five, six, seven hundredth episode and more to go. I hope. Take care, guys. Bye bye. Hi, Steve here from Wavem Studios, creators of the Commodore Story and the Commodore 64 game Cosmic Force. Just want to say a big thank you to Dan, Ravi and Joe for 400 episodes of the Retro Hour. Absolutely awesome. Keep them coming, boys. Hey, it's David here from the Geeky Guys podcast. I just wanted to congratulate you on 400 episodes of the Retro Hour podcast. Uh, You guys are superb. You're certainly our go-to for retro gaming news. And we love the guests that you have on as well. Absolutely fantastic. Love what you do. Um, Here's to the next 400 more. Hey Dan, Ravi and Joe. Cheeky Commodore Gamer here. Just want to say a big congratulations for reaching episode 400. You've interviewed some absolute retro legends over the years and I'm looking forward to the next 400. All the best, guys. Hi guys. I only discovered your podcast a couple of months ago and I'm sort of making my way back through all the episodes but I'm absolutely loving it. Um, You give me these kind of time warp moments during an episode where one of you will say something like Gizmondo and suddenly my mind travels back to 2005 when I was in Germany at Seabit Show um, standing at the Gizmondo stand. Anyway, loving all the nostalgia. Keep it up. Cheers. Oh well, hello. Welcome Pintable from Norway here. Dan, Ravi, Joe, congratulations on 400 episodes and thank you so much for making 400 episodes. I'll take a Jager bomb for that. <laughs> But I would also like to take the opportunity to uh, uh, say that you guys are, without a doubt, one of my favorite podcasts. And the reason for that is because of the guests you get on the show and how you guys interview them. Uh, Because out of 400 episodes, I think it's maybe 300 names that I've never heard about. And to listen to their story 
and to let them tell their story by themselves through voice instead of a some kind of interview on a on a news page the podcast format so much better and thank you so much for doing all the work and getting the video game history out there through your podcast and i'm really looking forward to episode 500 600 700 800 900 and especially number 1000 and um, yeah (laughs) again thank you cheers or as we say in norwegian skål (laughs) goodbye hello Tommy here. I've taken a break in playing Demon's Crest on the SNES to congratulate Retro Hour on their 400th episode. A podcast that has given me so much open inside and new information about this hobby that I love and new friends that I really, really cherish. So this is me saying cheers for another 400 episodes. Ta!